0: If only your listeners could see the facial hair on my face, they would know I have truly blossomed from a young boy into a magnificent man.
1: Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is April 6th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Oh, you know, I love it when... Uh... Basketball games start at 930 Eastern. I'm just going to join everyone on the East Coast and complain about the start time of that game.
2: Yeah. Unapologetic East Coast bias. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I was right there with you. I didn't even stay up for one shining moment, uh, which I usually do. And I also forgot one shining moment was a thing because <laughs> it hadn't happened in two years. And right. I don't have that memory span, apparently.
1: Yeah. Uh, from Los Angeles' 5:38 contributor, Jeff Foster. Jeff, did you have a problem staying up for the game?
3: Uh No. I didn't. <laughs> in fact, I was very relieved to see how late it was, so, you know,
2: you're <laughs> the target audience for that start time.
1: And
3: I did stay up for one shiny
1: moment. Yeah, I think we can agree that uh, one shiny moment was the highlight of the game really last night. It was not a fun it was, game. It was way it was not a more entertaining,
3: moment. way more entertaining than the actual uh, two hours of basketball that were played. I'll tell you that much. When
1: did you guys know the game was over? Oh, five minutes in?
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like five minutes in. Well, really, actually, there was a glimmer of hope early in the second half where I was like, ooh, Zach's Zach's going to do this. Zach's going to come back. And then Baylor was like, nope, I'm a, we're going to push our lead to 20. Is that okay?
1: Yeah, I, I actually liked how when you're I think I feel like announcers have to make the case always for the underdog that wh- whoever whichever team is trailing because otherwise, why do people keep watching? Right. But at there are times I was like, OK, stop. They're not coming. <laughs> they're they're down 15. Yes. Now they're down 12. They're still down by a lot. Like, come on. Um, it's it nine. It, it got
3: a little a, a little with it wasn't, a, you know, a complete. No, it was pretty bad. It was it was a, a very <laughs> one sided. I was trying to make a case for excitement in there, but there was little.
1: No, it was it was not. You know what was exciting? The women's final. Uh, even yes. though you know Stanford was fairly dominant early, but Arizona kept it close the whole way and had a chance at the very end. That was that was a fun ending to that game. I was still, I don't know. I love I love Ari McDonald. I just I I so adore short basketball players (laughs) because even the shortest basketball players are still substantially taller than me um but that's just you gotta root for that and she's just man she was fun to watch what a breakout star of the tournament
2: yeah yeah she was great i feel bad just because and you had said this in slack at the time sarah that if they had just kind of called a timeout and maybe reassessed when they knew that they couldn't get it to McDonald on that inbound play, because it was disappointing to see the game and the tournament that she had played end with her sort of like not really having a chance. Like she heaved it up there. Maybe it could have gone in, but it would have been an absolute miracle, I think. Whereas, like, you know, call something else, maybe it maybe realize that Stanford's entire defensive focus is gonna be on. Ari McDonald, because she's, you know, obviously the best player on Arizona. So I don't know.
1: There was probably a play there they could have run, although... Also, I mean, Stanford, you know, Stanford, Stanford has
2: very tall They do. Players.
1: And they got pretty good at escaping last minute shots. too. <laughs> and they did the same thing against uh, South Carolina when uh, South Carolina had two great looks, including the the very last one from Aaliyah Boston. So Tara Vanderveer won her first title in 29 years. That's a, a pretty nice gap in between titles. You got to love that.
2: I was a little surprised that it had been that long. But then you kind of think back and look at it and you're like, Stanford... Like, again, I I think I mentioned this on the show uh, when we were talking about the tournament. I think of them as being like a powerhouse, but that's because I'm stuck in the 90s.
3: (laughs) I know. Me, too. Me, too. Um, You had that entire Yukon decades long dynasty in between. So that kind of absorbed a lot of those championships, I think.
1: Well, and they they made the final four several times in the middle. There, they just didn't quite um, overcome. Yeah, UConn and and you know some other teams in there too. But
2: yeah, and uh, I I just wanted to say that uh, there were interesting parallels between the semifinal with UConn and Arizona and the championship on the men's side, where it was both cases of these like you know just dominating teams, big favorites, just coming out flat from the very beginning and falling in huge holes and then you know thinking oh maybe they'll come back and then just the the underdog having an answer at every point now I say Arizona much more significant of an underdog than Baylor was against uh, against Gonzaga because Baylor and Gonzaga kind of co-favorites throughout the year or at least if you know uh, Baylor like a 1b to Gonzaga's 1a but still uh, it did strike me as being like Felt very similar, and, of course, I was rooting for the favorite turned team in a big deficit both times uh, for, for <laughs> bracket purely purposes. purely bracket reasons?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: completely. Yeah, I lost a lot of money last night with, with and not winning. So
0: Yeah,
1: I was already uh, – I really had a chance to win the, the men's bracket. The women's bracket I was just hopeless on because um, of my very, very bad upset picks early on in the bracket. But um, yeah, Gonzaga. What the heck,
2: man! And we got swept by Nate Silver, right? He won both the men's and the women's uh, yes. pools. Yes. In a
1: terrible turn of events, 5:38 intern Nate Silver won both brackets, uh, and everyone's no one's happy about it. Literally no one, except for Nate.
3: Wait, <laughs> Nate won. Nate won both brackets outright, or he won the combined. He won both Q-A? brackets uh,
1: both. outright.
3: Oh, really? Wow, that's... Really
1: bad. Yeah. No, it's terrible. <laughs>
3: It sounds like he has a knack for predicting things. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he as should a, try as a casual it. observer. Maybe he should uh, you know, devote more time into uh, building mathematical models to predict things.
1: <laughs> Maybe. He said he uh, he definitely followed the model, his own model, our website's model. So I guess that all makes sense.
2: <laughs> Except not because I don't think we had we had Gonzaga and Yukon as the favorites going in. So he he played a little bit of like Oh, I built this model that says these teams are going to win, and then I'll pick like the second most likely, thinking that everyone else will pick the most likely, and uh, it's a little bracket gamesmanship, I feel like.
1: Yeah, I guess that's the way you had to do it, right?
3: So do you are you going to rethink your opinion on the on the first four now with no. with this? Okay. All right. No,
1: I I think All right. Get, get rid of the first four. Like those if you can't do better in your Regular season, you don't need to. You don't need to make it. I. I don't think that ends justify the means. What if your
3: conference has been clearly undervalued all tournament? And I mean, and I
1: think passed. we do need to talk about. We should maybe watch a few more Pac-12 games next year. They're on too late. It's too late. at nine People twenty are, yeah.
2: Eastern. People yep. are sleeping.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <10/20 laughs> probably. See, we need yeah. to approach the Pac-12 season like it's the. Uh, NCAA tournament final. It's just preparation for us getting ready for these 920 start times for the championship game. If we just think about it like that, it's training. And then we'll learn more about those teams as, as we go. On today's show, we'll continue our discussion of the NCAA tournaments and debate that legendary buzzer beater over UCLA in the semifinal. Then we'll talk a little bit about the Masters and about Jordan Spieth putting his long losing streak to bed. Finally, we'll have a very special guest join us to take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. This year's NCAA tournaments featured many great games, but we got a new contender for game of the century when Gonzaga held off UCLA in the final four with a phenomenal buzzer beating three in overtime from Jalen Suggs. Equally phenomenal was the outcry from Twitter when Skip Bayless tweeted out that the game couldn't count as an all-time great because Sugg's game-winning bank shot was just pure luck. On his Fox Sports talk show Undisputed, Bayless defended and expanded on his reaction.
4: You can't tell me he wasn't trying to swish it because in your mind's eye, you don't think... I think I'll bank this. He's trying you know? to make it. He's just, he's just trying, trying to make it. He's just trying to swish it. He's trying to make it through the rim yeah. on the fly. And and it it's a little wide right, and it's about a foot long, and yet it just hits perfectly, boom, boom, and goes right to the basket. It was just shocking, boom, boom, through the basket. And it's like, oh my god, he just banked in the right. game winner. <laughs> well, obviously, because you have given me the field, I'm rooting for the Bruins. And obviously, I'm like, give me a you-know-what. <laughs> and and I'm screaming and yelling, and Ernestine's sitting with me, my wife, and Hazel's barking at me because I'm out of my mind. But Ernestine's point was, what a great shot. I said, no, it's pure luck at that point. And I tweeted, it was pure luck because I hate to see a great game end on a shot like that. It marred the game for me. And I was a little disappointed in Jalen Suggs because... He immediately runs and jumps up on the scores table and he said, I wanted to do what Kobe and Dwayne Wade right. did. Okay, I got that. But did you make a skill shot? No, yeah. you made a pure luck shot. I, I, again, I'll give you 5% skill, but I'm, I'm doing 95% luck. So,
1: immediate disqualification for skip using made up percentages for luck and skill but but i'm interested in the idea that an amazing shot needs to be more skill than luck to count as amazing is that is that true it it would disqualify all half court shots right because even the best long range shooters are not good from that far away and yet we don't think of a lot of layups as being you know one shining moment fodder. Neil, does the amount of luck in a buzzer beating shot matter? I don't
2: think so. I mean, I think by definition, well, if we're talking about uh, great shots, shots that stand out in our mind, I think by definition, the more improbable, the more memorable they are, and therefore the more lucky in the conception that Skip Bayless is using here they were, because like improbable shots going in, Need luck to to go in, you know. That's sort of how this works. Um, I I kind of agree with the feeling that it was a little bit anticlimactic after this sort of great back and forth game looked like it was going to go into double overtime, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's over. Maybe the bigger question is whether or not we will our perception of it will change based on what we know eventually happened to Gonzaga, where we don't get the chance to weave it into this idea similar to like. You know, when great teams have great moments and then they go on to win the championship, we sort of have a tendency to take those moments and think that they happened in the championship. Like I go back to the Miracle on Ice team, uh, the US 1980 Olympic hockey team. If you ask 10 people on the street, all ten would probably say, Oh, yeah, they beat the Soviet Union in the gold medal game, the, you know, the miracle on ice. That was all in that. No, it wasn't actually in the gold medal game. They had to win another game after that. But we, over time, we've kind of conflated that moment, do you believe in miracles? Yes, with being the thing that clinched the gold medal. And so I think over time, if Gonzaga had won, we might have actually sort of thought, oh, Jalen sucks hit that shot to win the championship, you know, with the fog of memory and years kind of passing. But now I don't know how the the opposite is when they don't go on to win the championship does that change how we view it
1: yeah i think that's probably true that this one it will change because we because of what happened in the title game and maybe even you know there i think there's a case to be made that if gonzaga had lost but lost close it would be a little different too that they got sort of blown out will we remember that will we remember really anything about this gonzaga team or will we just remember baylor i'm not i'm not sure i do think I mean, I think, Neil, you're right. Like the Christian Leitner buzzer beater was in the Elite Eight. Like I I don't remember. I don't I didn't remember that at all until I looked it up again. And I was like, oh, yeah, like that. I definitely would have said that that was in the title game. But on the other hand, like the other big moment for me was the Valparaiso buzzer beater and they didn't. When? Bryce drew yeah
3: yeah, but that, yeah. that was a uh, david and goliath but yeah that i think that gets you know that when a when a team from a small school knocks one off and and that's happened a couple times you, you tend to remember it
1: i wonder too like i was watching a, like a like a compilation of buzzer beaters through the years actually it was only through 2010 through 2019 and it was 18 minutes long and i was like wait There have been that many buzzer beaters just in the past decade and some of them were yeah i mean some of them were kind of uh stretching the definition of buzzer beater it's like but there's still 20 seconds left that's not what a buzzer beater is but there have been a lot of really amazing last second shots and like there's only so many highlights right so you know they show the ones they show over and over like why do i remember the valparaiso one so much i mean it was when I was a kid and watching, but also it was shown year after year after year. So it sort of depends on how this one is like handled and maybe it won't be, it won't be shown as much now because Gonzaga didn't win. So there's a whole, a whole confluence of things there. Where, where would you guys put this in your buzzer beater rankings? Third. Chris Jenkins
3: one. Okay. Leitner two. This three. Four. Jordan Poole. Uh, I wondered Michigan. if you would.
1: Yeah, if you would bring that up. Come that.
3: on, that was a true. It was a good beater. one. No,
1: it was. It was <laughs> good. What about you, Neil?
2: Well, I just can't believe that uh, that that we have such recency bias on this. What about Keith Smart? What about uh, I? No, I, I, put, I, kind I of, put
3: Bryce Drew four.
2: <laughs> yeah i i do think that uh the chris Jenkins one is the number one for me uh i probably put mario chalmers shot uh for kansas even though uh it, it was didn't actually yeah. win it just tied the game but i think so much of it like you said sarah first of all so much of it, so much of it is like just where we are as fans at the moment and like what it means to us. Did we happen to have money riding on the bracket uh, for that particular result? Uh, God bless 2008 Kansas, incidentally. Uh, and then uh, also uh, just sort of, I th- I think to your point about the, um, the Bryce Drew shot, was there a shortage of buzzer beaters in uh in previous years? Are we seeing buzzer beater inflation because teams are shooting more uh jumpers, they're shooting more threes? I, I kind of feel like they-, they showed the Bryce Drew one so much because they had fewer ones to choose from. Also, now we have 25 more years of history to choose from, you know. Since then, so I I do think that that was a combination of like front-loaded ones, like the Leitner, like the Bryce Drew, uh, like the Keith Smart. Those ones are are sort of more iconic to us because we grew up with them, and also they had fewer ones to choose from on the CBS coverage in the 90s. Whereas now they have a lot more to choose from, and they can kind of show the newer ones.
1: I think that's right. I I would I think it'd be fun to do a like, is there is there buzzer beater inflation? That kind of, I don't know how in the world we would quantify that, but I kinda i, I kind of wanna do that next year. By the way, we
2: didn't even mention Michael Jordan in, uh, <laughs> for UNC in the, what was it, 81 tournament or, or whenever it was, 82?
1: Yeah, what is that? Why do we remember some I think more than others? Weren't
3: there a couple, it wasn't a
1: true,
2: like, it may have horn not have goes been off a, in the air. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Tate yeah.
2: George, on the other hand, for UConn, was a buzzer beater. Mm. Tate George. Anyone yeah. remember Tate George? Yeah, and so
3: was so was so was pool in terms of like the horn goes off in the air and you don't have to deal with like the half a second, you know, figure out how much time. By the way, there wasn't really one in this tournament. I was kind of thinking that like there's going to be one eventually. We you know, uh Max Acemns had that chance to beat Arkansas and that they were down two he shot a three, they would have won. That would have been an all-time classic. But remember also, like, so, like, I think that's the criteria. You need the horn to go off in the air and your team needs to go from losing to winning. So the Chris Jenkins shot actually would get docked a little bit there because if if he misses, it goes to overtime. But so would the Jalen Suggs. Yeah. So I'm saying, you know, to, to try to come up with the, the metric for the what makes the quintessential buzzer beater.
1: All right, Jeff, you have your assignment for next year's tournament. You come up with a metric for, for buzzer beaters <laughs> <For>, and <they'll, laughs> we'll, we'll make the definitive ranking of all buzzer beaters. Has,
3: shot has to go off clean. Horn has to go off in the air. And so there's no reviewing or like checking the, checking the board to make sure you got it off or, or that there's more time left. Mm-hmm. You know, none of that. You know, players walk off the court that that would that would be right. ideal.
1: And then do you get extra points if the team goes on to win the title or if yes. that, if the yes. game was the title game? Yes, yeah. you
3: do. Yes. We're going to work that in to the model. This is
1: this is exciting. Leverage
3: adjusted. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a question about the bank? Because I've, I've never been quite well, I've never been remotely good at basketball. Um. And a, anytime I have hit a shot and it was a bank, I was always like I didn't dock myself for that i was like you yeah, know i guess i meant to do that so <laughs> it's not luck really i mean it, it's a i mean it's a long shot so theoretically it makes more sense to use the backboard right
1: i mean i like yeah, i'm also not a good basketball player but when i was shooting longer distance i was aiming at the at the square i mean that's where i was oh. aiming oh i wasn't
3: I've never aimed at the square, so I, I was probably getting lucky.
1: Yeah,
2: you were trying to swish it, which I think, if we're being honest, Jalen Suggs was trying to swish it. But How we do don't we know
3: he didn't call bank? Can we have it? What if he thought
2: bank?
1: <laughs> Somebody had to ask him, right?
2: <laughs> Did he think bank?
1: Did, did you think bank? <laughs>
3: you might not have articulated it because of right. the moment, what, but what, what were you thinking?
1: What are the rules of bank? Do you have to say it out loud? Can you just think well,
2: it? Well, <laughs> yeah, in in a competitive horse-like setting, you, you would have to say it uh, before doing it. Truly. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to bank it to to make it and match the shot for the purposes of horse.
3: If Gordon Hayward hits that three... Which was probably even farther than Suggs, I think. I think it or was. Maybe yeah. around the it was same. It in the range. same neighborhood. And that I think would have been a bank shot too. I don't remember, but it was it was close. I mean, that's probably number one all time because that you have the final, and I think you it's go from lo- losing to winning, and you have the underdog thing, and you win the title. So he he, he would have had everything going. That would have been automatic one.
1: <laughs> nice. I just I want just to go back to the take for one last moment I just like can't get over this image of this amazing shot going in like everyone like screaming in unison across the country and Skip Bayless like criticizing his wife for saying what a great shot like that is just like such an image to me like what a what a terrible way to be a fan of basketball what a sad way to live your life. Marfusity
3: hits him in practice all the time I believe that. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think guys like Jalen Suggs and people who are good at basketball are better at those long shots than, than say, the guy pulled out of the upper deck to take a half-court shot well, at Oh, yeah. for sure. Um,
1: <laughs> of course. But they're not, like, better than 50% from... I mean, like, wh- where is the luck and skill line? It's not like that's they're...
2: A great, that's a great question. Like, what where is the point, like, distance from the basket where... If you take like Dame Lillard and you take some schmo out of the stands and you have them shoot going backwards away from the basket, where is the point in which there is not like a discernible difference in odds of making it between Dame Lillard and schmo?
3: I would say there there is none. (laughs) Like out of the arena, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He's using like a catapult. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> I mean, like, if I'm at if you know, if I'm at the opposite sideline and I'm just like launching the ball, well, will it even go? Like, how far close will it even come in distance to the basket? But Dame Lillard is obviously going to be a lot closer than I'm going to be, or someone well, out of the stands.
2: And then you have to figure out, like, yeah, what about, like, the dude perfect factor where you have guys <laughs> that are, like, they practice those shots.
1: Right. They yeah. might be
2: better than uh, Dame Lillard at making those shots. Although I bet far out.
1: Dame Lillard practices those shots probably too, right, just for fun. But he practices
2: <laughs> other shots. They only oh, practice shots. That's
3: those true. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> we didn't even mention the Lorenzo Charles NC State. I guess cause that was a dunk or a layup? That was an airball. An airball slash
1: layup, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Iconic though. Always always shown at oh, the end. Oh, we always end.
2: see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jim Jim Valvano running, you know, yeah. onto the court and, and looking for people. Uh but yeah, this the Jalen Suggs one was almost like if the Lorenzo Charles one had like gone in just clean <laughs> er, not clean off the off the backboard, of course.
1: Of the glass, yeah.
2: Which was called. Skip what I'm like, <laughs>
1: Skip (laughs) would not have cared for it. Skip would not have liked it at all. All right. I think we can leave this here for now. What a season. What a tournament. Um, Lots of fun there. Uh, We'll take a break and then come back to talk about the Masters. The Masters get started this Thursday, and there's a lot to be excited about. Dustin Johnson will take a shot at defending his title at Augusta just five months after he won the 2020 Masters in November. John Rahm thought he might not be playing because his first child was due this weekend and then his wife gave birth last weekend and the new father will be looking for his fourth top 10 finish in five years. Rory McIlroy has a new swing coach in pursuit of that elusive green jacket. One person heading into the Masters with suddenly a lot less to prove is Jordan Spieth. Spieth ended his nearly four-year PGA tournament drought by winning the Valero Texas Open on Sunday, and he goes into the Masters ranked a resurgent 38th in the world. Spieth is also healthy now. He revealed last month that he had struggled with a chipped bone in his hand, suffered in 2018, that may have affected his drive. On CBS Sports HQ, Michael Breed talked about what Spieth has overcome and what his prospects for Augusta look like.
4: Now... The pain seems to have gone away. And look, we all know that Jordan has uh, worked his way out of the abyss. I go back to this other thing. Jordan had a shot that plagued him, and it, and it plagued him, quite frankly, at Augusta National in that fourth round back in, in 2016. He hit the shot on 12 that we all remember. But he almost hit it out of bounds on the fourth hole, the par 3. And he hit it to the right of the fairway bunker on hole number 8. And so you see it come up on 4, 8, and then 12, where he has this shot that's, that's – uh, He's losing to the right-hand side. I think this shot was in his game. They have worked that out now, and he is on the road to recovery um, and playing some fantastic golf. And And I think that, that he's going to be very ready for Augusta National, and he's going to have a great Masters.
1: So Jordan Spieth's 1,351-day winless streak is over. Jeff, do we think about him differently now that we know more about that hand injury?
3: I mean, I think it makes sense. Uh, Call me a cynic. I'm a little skeptical about, you know, how severe that injury was because we didn't hear about it until now. Um, I mean, it wasn't—he was still out there playing all the time, so— it's hard to evaluate that. But I do know and we all know that golf is like a weird game and that, you know, a tiny little thing is different and that's enough to throw you off. And he was saying it was affecting his grip on the club. So it makes sense. It totally makes sense. But usually when someone is playing poorly and they're hurt, they let people know that they're hurt and that's the reason they're playing poorly or they don't play. So it, it's a little bit of revisionist to a certain extent, but then again, it wasn't me with the injury, so I, I'm not one to judge Mr. Speef here.
1: It was interesting seeing, like, like people have brought up clips of his uh, turning performances, especially in 2018, and like have showing him like take a swing and then like kind of, you know, make a fist with his hand like something was going on there. That's not something I really people noticed that much at the time. And maybe he couldn't really name what the problem was and so didn't talk about it. But I think you're right. I think
3: we also think about Tiger, who's when his back was hurting and he wasn't playing well, he let you know, you know, <laughs> every shot. That he was not feeling well um, the
1: grimacing uh, the, yeah yeah, yeah. The
3: <laughs> groaning and dropping the clubs <laughs> yeah
1: yeah there's you know it's a performance a little bit well neil spieth has looked substantially better just over his past several tournaments even even before sunday's win what is he doing better right now
2: well uh, th- one of the big things is that his approach game really his t to green performance if you look at something like strokes gained which is this metric that basically looks at each shot and sees how much you improved your chances of holding out uh earlier on the on each hole with each stroke his t to green numbers are way better than they've been the past few years so this year he ranks 35th in strokes gained t to green and he's playing a lot better since uh february also And what's interesting is that it's not necessarily associated with driving the ball better. In fact, his driving stats this season are still kind of bad. He's 89th in distance and 206th in driving accuracy percentage, just barely hitting the fairway more than half of the time. Yet his... his T to green game after drives, so this is including approaching the green, It is it includes uh, play around the green, is much better, uh, and right now he ranks 23rd in strokes gained uh, on approach and 17th around the green.
3: I I, he's kind of he's an interesting player. He's a unicorn in the sense that he's just not doing what everyone else who's really succeeding in his sport is doing, you know, which is bombing it off the tee and, 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 you know, the kind of bomb and gouge approach where uh, you put it so far out there that you set yourself up. Uh, for an easier second shot, regardless of where this is Bryson golf, essentially, but right. but but also Bryce not just <laughs> Bryson ball, but not just Bryson. I mean, Rory, Justin Thomas, Johnson, Rahm, um a lot of them do this. He, he he's. We haven't seen a lot of players have continued success, at least in terms of majors, with you know not being very strong off the tee. And he's never really been that strong. You go back to his last win, the two, the the British Open win in 2017, and he looked like he was going to lose that to Matt Kuchar because he drove the ball, I think, like 70 yards off the fairway and had to recover and scramble. He's always kind of played this way, meaning he's not doing himself any, like, great favors with the first shot and having to kind of scramble, hit great approaches, have really strong iron play, and then make, you know, if the putter gets hot, then he'll he'll probably win. And... It's not a great formula for success, meaning like I I think that's part of the the explanation of the slump is that he had a a smaller margin of error based on his skill set and what he does well.
2: And I think that's a reason why maybe we should be a little skeptical of his chances at Augusta, because all of the research that I've done in the past about what specifically plays well at the Masters says that you have to be able to hit it really far and it, it doesn't really favor these guys that they hit it shorter than the, the longest hitters and also just spray it everywhere uh, and are relying on great approach shots because we know that those greens at Augusta are, they're very undulating and they put the pin placement in places where the ball can kind of get away from you really fast if you're relying on reasonably long iron shots. So what you really want, like the perfect Augusta player is somebody that hits it super far off the tee sets themselves up with like a pretty short approach and then let the putting just kind of go as it goes, because there's like no correlation between how well you putt in the masters versus how well you've putted going into the masters, if that makes sense. It's just all over the place.
3: I think that's generally true, but you do, the interesting thing about Augusta is that you do see all different types of players. I mean, Zach Johnson won a Masters, and he's definitely a short hitter. We've seen Patrick Reed win a Masters because his putter was just completely on fire, but generally, I would say that is right. But then again, Speef, by the way, if you if you take his mini meltdown and his big meltdown sandwiching his win, he came very close to winning 3 of these in a row.
1: I'm going to start categorizing my meltdowns just in my daily life like a major meltdown, a mini meltdown, just a normal meltdown. Well, it's just hard
3: to put cuz he was so young the first time and the in the second time, the second meltdown was just such a I mean it's a what? top meltdown in the history of golf. So
1: <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh so positively
2: Van de <laughs> Yes.
1: It's right
2: up there with her.
1: So so do you consider Jeff, do you consider Spieth the favorite for the Masters? No, no. no.
3: I actually think, you know, a, a lot's been made of the betting odds, but we have to always remember that the betting odds are a reflection of the public and mm-hmm. how many bets they're taking. And we know for a fact, because we've heard odds makers and bookmakers say this already in the last week or so, that the public is very much endorsing Jordan Spieth. He's taking a lot of action and that will drive the price down. When in truth, I, I think he has a good shot. I think he'll be right up there, but I, I wouldn't consider him the favorite.
1: Well, so let's talk about one of the favorites, Dustin Johnson, who set the tournament scoring record at 268 back in, in November. Jeff, how, how likely is it that that Dustin will repeat?
3: I mean, it, it's likely, but again, he's not playing great right now. And he, he tends to be a player who runs hot and cold. And if he's in a hot streak, he's basically unstoppable but he's not in one of those right now i mean he 48th at the players 54th at the wgc before that and then i guess he was top 10 in at riviera but he's not he's not on fire it's not great form coming in but i obviously won't count him out he's the best player in the world
2: and that's kind of a counterpoint where according to t to green which we've sort of found is the best predictor of not just winning the masters but like how good you are it sort of takes the luck factor of putting out of things that he's still 6th in that uh, he didn't do very well in that at the players but before that he's been doing fine in that category he just is having a really bad putting year he ranks 149th in putting but again that's something that you know could turn around i don't know that we necessarily know why between the mental and the physical and just the the fact that there aren't as many chances I mean it's kind of a small sample in any given tournament you know the putts that make the difference between having a good putting round and like a not good one because you know all the ones inside of a few feet the pros make almost all of the you know a very kind of consistently make them and it is sort of some of those like spieth like long putts that can kind of have an undue influence on how well you're your putting goes and then have an undue influence on you winning tournaments, right?
1: So, Jeff, is there anyone else you're watching who could be a dark horse this year in the Masters? Yeah, I don't
3: think it's a great tournament for dark horses. Well, we have seen this thing where the favorite generally doesn't win. And remember, Dustin wasn't the favorite Bryson was going into the last one. And I actually would consider Bryson, even though I think his odds are a little bit longer than Dustin's the favorite this time. I think having that, the way he approaches golf and, and the way he kind of is constantly adjusting himself and adjusting his game based on you know his results i would consider the fact that he came into the the masters in november as a heavy favorite and and underperformed i mean he didn't miss the cut but he did lose a ball and we had to look for it for a long time and it was kind (laughs) of not a great performance i think it was in the you know tie for 30 Something 35th or something like that. It wasn't the first time he's played the Masters, but it was kind of the first time the new Bryson had played the Masters. Mm-hmm. So I think he'll he'll grow up. I also think he'll benefit from not having that spotlight on him and having the spotlight on someone else like Speef. I mean, you have to go pretty far back to like Trevor Immelman to find a true true out of nowhere winner it's generally someone in that top tier and i think there's a lot of guys that can win i think like personally i think daniel berger is a guy who doesn't get a lot of attention who i uh, i think has a very good chance of winning i'm personally going to be pulling for lee westwood who's been playing great and always plays great at this has never won the masters but if you look at his record going back it's like 2nd third seventh second he's he's always up there and it's a great course for him so i, I would love to see him win i think he has a a real chance to, a real chance to finish second obviously yeah no i was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> hey look if we could bet on second
1: I, lee can we leave well, some probably can, some casino actually. takes probably. that bet right yeah <laughs> uh well who do you th- who all right what's your prediction jeff who do you I think, think is bryson's
3: gonna win? gonna win i think bryson's gonna win and I, Justin Thomas wouldn't surprise me either. That's, that's again, yeah. not a long shot at all. But I, that is I, I, the, the two players who I think are best suited and probably will eventually win a green jacket anyway.
1: How about you, Neil?
2: Well, uh, I like John Rahm. He, uh, I think, is second right now in strokes gain, T to green. I also think, uh, I don't know if you can be a dark horse if you've won a major before, but Colin Murakawa could be up there too. His putting is not great but he right now ranks third in strokes gain t to green and he's been hitting the ball really well recently also uh and so to see him like kind of down the list uh of of favorites uh i I don't know that he's even in the top 10 in the odds he could surprise people
1: yeah yeah absolutely i i i think wouldn't it be amazing if this were rory's year no one thinks he's gonna win it you know he's he has sort of hurt his game by trying to trying to be like bryson um and he's trying to fix his swing now i think that that would be i'm rooting for the best story and that would be an amazing story i mean spieth winning too would obviously be a good story but that's too easy. Now everyone thinks Speed is going to win.
3: <laughs> yeah, and Rory's record here is amazing. I mean, look, just going back, fifth, twenty-first, fifth, seventh, tenth, fourth, eighth. I mean, that that goes back to twenty fourteen. That's that's incredible. But yeah, he's not playing great, so I don't think anyone's talking about. It. You know who's going to win after all this discussion? Brooks. Brooks. <laughs> Brooks <laughs> is
1: if he can play.
3: Classic yeah if he's healthy yeah. if he's healthy classic
1: <laughs> Brooksy if he can he'll either not play because of his knee he's there but you know they he say could, he's
3: healthy yeah. right
1: he'll either not play or win it all there's no in between with Brooksy ever and uh, Lee Westwood will finish second that's what we know for sure <laughs> yeah we
3: know that's you don't need to watch folks you don't right need now. to
1: watch <laughs> See, yeah no please please do watch okay we can leave this here for now let's take a quick break and then we'll be back for a rabbit hole of the week At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we are delighted to be joined by CNN senior <laughs> political writer and analyst and, and, and former 538 Whiz Kid. Former. 538 whiz good. he's a whiz man ha- now whiz man now harry enton harry how are you if
0: only your listeners could see the facial hair on my face they would know <laughs> i have truly blossomed from a young boy into a magnificent man and oh my god <laughs> you know i'm fine uh this is the, still the craziest time but i can see i can see the light mm. i can see the light i can see the summer I can see us going out there and being able to enjoy a baseball game at the stadium without worrying whether or not it will kill me. So Yeah, um,
1: then you can just get back to hating the Yankees and not worrying about, about getting to see them at all.
0: Uh, excuse me, that we now refer to them as the Yankees. They're the New York Yankees. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> add that O instead of the A because I find that if you just change a letter in someone's name, it perturbs them greatly. So they're the New York <laughs> Yankees.
1: <laughs> Harry versus the world always. I love it. Um, Well, so Harry, you wrote a great piece over the weekend about MLB's decision to move its 2021 All-Star Game out of Georgia based on objections to the state's recent changes to its voting laws. And so we wanted to have you on to kind of walk us through why MLB's choice was so surprising and what it might mean for the league going forward. So I guess to start, can you talk about the the demographic makeup of Major League Baseball right now? Where, where would we expect the league to fall politically based on its, its players, its coaches, and its fans?
0: Sure. So, you know, one of the things that makes Major League Baseball unique out of, say, the three major sports leagues, I'm saying the MLB, the NFL, the NBA, I'm counting as the three, is that the NFL and the NBA are primarily African-American among its players, right? The NFL is somewhere in the 60, 65% range, depending on how exactly you can. The NBA is well north into the 70s. Less than 10% of Major League Baseball players are African-American, uh, Sixty about 60% are white. It's a majority white league. That's very unique among those three sports. Um, and obviously we know when it comes to politics, while we don't know the individual politics of the of the individual players, we do know that white people tend to be less Democratic than people of color. So that's something that was surprising there. And in terms of the league's fan bases, we know that NBA fans are far more likely to be Democratic than Republican. Uh, The NFL, that's somewhat the case now, though that wasn't necessarily the case a few years ago. We can get into that a little bit down the line. And among the MLB fan base, it, it's pretty split, right? Uh, in fact, there was a, a poll that was put out by the Washington Post, which found that Republican and Republican-leaning independents were actually slightly more likely to be baseball fans than Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. So this is not necessarily the sport, especially given the history of baseball not necessarily being known as this activist progressive league, that we would see this type of movement to take the All-Star game from Georgia, from Atlanta, and move it over to Colorado.
2: And the NBA, you mentioned, that's kind of an interesting comparison uh, in this particular case, because they set the precedent for this, right? They moved the all-star game away from Charlotte in response to a uh, transgender bathroom bill. That was back in like 2016 or 17. Is that sort of the the comparison point that we should be making here of a league sort of exerting, you know, political influence by by making a move of like a major event from a particular state because of laws that are on the books there?
0: Well, it's certainly the most recent incident of it, but major sports teams, major leagues, you know, and I'm not just referring to Major League Baseball here, professional sports leagues have been doing this for a while, right? I mean, remember, the NFL moved its Super Bowl that was going to take place in the early 90s, moved it from Arizona because the state would not recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But of course, the NFL back then was 60% black. If I recall correctly as well, uh, the AFL moved its Pro Bowl or all-star game, whatever they called it back then in the mid-60s, it was going to be, I believe, in New Orleans. And they moved it out of there because of the way that the city treated the players. So this is not anything that's new. And when people say this is new, you know, oh, sports league all all of a sudden being uh, political, that's a bunch of hogwash. We have seen consistently sports leagues apply pressure, even when it came to the Atlanta Braves coming to play down, you know, from Milwaukee coming down to Atlanta, there was political pressure um, assigned to ensure that the uh, fans would not be segregated in their sections. We know that the same was true when it came to the Los Angeles Rams, when they were placed, in Los Angeles, they had to make sure that the league, the team, would be integrated because that was the only way they get the team there to be able to play in the Los Angeles Coliseum. So there's nothing new going on here. This is just the latest illustration of it.
1: So, in terms of what was is motivating MLB here, if it's if it's not really necessarily politically aligned with its its players or its fans, what what is motivating the league? Do you think?
0: I mean, it could be multiple things, right? This is a little bit more of guesswork based upon reporting that we see, whether it be in The Athletic or whether it be Howard Bryant's reporting, which was very good. Um, I think there could be a few things. Number one, it could have been the case that the players might have said something down the line, even if they weren't initially saying something. And so far, it was the case, at least from the reporting, that they weren't initially saying something. But I think the other thing to keep in mind here that's so important is that these are professional leagues, aka they're out there to make money and a big reason that they make money is from corporate sponsorships. And there was a lot of corporate pressure, it seems, that was put on Major League Baseball. And we've seen that applied over and over and over again, right? And so I think that the Major League Baseball was afraid of losing money. I think, obviously, that there might have been some incidents you know, of when we're talking about losing money, that there would have been a pressure applied to these corporate sponsors who then had to apply it down to the teams themselves. And you see that on Twitter all of the time, right? I mean, look, Twitter is not the electorate, but certainly the way that brands, that pressure is applied to brands, certainly you saw there. And I think it really played a key role in terms of the MLB saying, why should we deal with this problem? You know, obviously when you're a sports league, you're just trying to get from point A to point B, and this was, you know, a hurdle to get through. So let's just move it to Colorado, make our lives a lot easier.
2: And what do you think the fallout is going to be from this ultimately? I know there's been some talk of people boycotting Major League Baseball, people talking about removing their antitrust exemption, which is sort of like the precious thing that makes <laughs> Major League Baseball, you know, when you start talking about the antitrust exemption, that kind of gets people's attention. Do you think that that is going to any of that is going to actually come to pass? I know there have been some kind of threats o- uh, about that for various reasons over the years, but it's never really seemed to kind of get anywhere. Uh, d- and and does does mlb what would their reaction to that be like they're not going to move it back to atlanta right i mean the you know it's it's like what does it look like what do the people hope to accomplish you know boycotting it
0: i i mean we saw that when when it came to the nfl right a few years ago which the partisanship of the fandom in the nfl has generally been pretty bipartisan neil may recall that we wrote a piece uh, about four years ago when the NFL players were were kneeling in response to racism and p- police brutality, uh, that president, then President Trump very much was not a fan of that. Oh, really? Yeah, I know, <laughs> shocking. Uh, and he very much chastised the league and its players. And as the NFL tried to protect itself, but in fact, what happened with the fandom was that many fewer Republicans said that they were fans of the NFL. I believe like the percentage of Republicans who said they were fans of the NFL dropped by double digits. I think it was 15 points, according to a Gallup poll at the time. Uh, So there is a possibility that there is going to be some Republicans who will boycott it, that there could be some lower fandom. But at the end of the day, the NFL gained back a lot of those fans. You like a sport because you like a sport. You can't hold out like the idea that I wouldn't be, you know, if all of a sudden the nfl the buffalo bills decided to declare that they preferred you know um i don't know ginger ale to cream soda i i couldn't i couldn't possibly you know that might upset me but I, it, it would sting. stay away
2: it would sting <laughs> but i couldn't necessarily, you think about boycotting
0: i think about boycotting but i couldn't necessarily stay away and so you know obviously this is a little bit more of a hardened thing but we did see generally a lot of those nfl fans move back and There is certainly the potential, though I should say, for at least an immediate backlash. But in terms of the um, antitrust thing, here's the deal: at least for now, Democrats control both chambers of Congress. What are they going to do? You know, there's no way that they could get anything done, at least in the immediate term. And by the time that maybe Republicans are back in control, I think this is going to be long in the rearview mirror.
1: Yeah. What about the what about pressure in the in the other direction? What kind of effect might might this move have on the Georgia legislature and the the situation there? Is there is there any chance that pressure from MLB or from those big Georgia-based businesses like Delta and, and Coca-Cola, is there any chance that that would result in, in reversal or, or changes now to these voting laws? I tend to
0: doubt that it would. I mean, uh, Governor Brian Kemp, uh, who, who Donald Trump was not a big fan of because of the way that he thought he handled the vote counting down there. A completely legitimate election. There is no sign of any substantial fraud, at least to the extent to overturn the results. But the president was not a fan of Brian Kemp and Brian Kemp is now using this to try and, you know, bump up his bona fides with the Republican base ahead of a potential 2022 Republican primary for governor. So I tend to doubt that there's gonna be a lot of pressure applied and that this may switch. However, I think that this could, in fact, have a large impact on other states and other states trying to pass laws that maybe corporate sponsors don't necessarily like. So we have a lot of bills that are out there in terms of transgender people playing sports. And we already saw that the South Dakota governor, Kristi Noem, vetoed that legislation in that particular state. We saw that the uh, governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, vetoed the legislation in that particular state. And there's good reason to believe that that occurred at least partially because of corporate pressure. And you can see that these corporations are not fooling around when it comes down to Georgia. So, you know, when it comes to a state like an Arkansas, like a South Dakota, do I really want to lose that money over something like this, something that could be political? I think it will make a lot of state governors and a lot of states think twice, even if it's not necessarily the case in Georgia with changing what they are already doing.
1: Yeah, that that is a great point. And there have been times when these kinds of controversies happening within a state have made groups con- reconsider holding their events in those states and and then, you know, you've seen change over time. So it will be interesting to see if, if other states back down from any of that. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us, Harry. It was great to talk to you again.
0: You know, this may have been only a small part of your week, but it was a big part of mine. So, <laughs> thank you oh. very much. Wow. Uh, now, if you can tell me who that was, uh, who originally said that? I will get it, it. I'm like I'm butchering it a little bit, but it was a uh, it, it, somebody. Both of you should know, uh, but it won't come to your head first. It was a very articulate baseball announcer. Uh,
1: it's got to be Vin Scully. Right?
2: It's not Vin Scully. Oh no.
1: <laughs> well, Harry
2: would never do something that promoted Vin Scully. He's, That's a good point. M- yeah, I'm sorry. The biggest He's the only person that doesn't adore Vin Scully in uh, all of baseball fandom.
0: Just remember, any big call in which Vin Scully was a part of, there's a pretty good chance that the other—that there was another announcer who was doing a better job of that big call. I'm just saying. <laughs>
2: uh, so who's I, the quote from? It's from
0: Ernie Harwell. <laughs> okay. When, er,
2: when Ernie Harwell... Detroit Tigers.
0: That, correct. His final announcement. Uh, when he was going off the air, he said, uh, I might have only been a small part of your life, but you were a big part of mine. Aww, and it was a wow. very, it was a great turn of phrase. Um, and Ernie Harwell, who of course was, speaking of people who may have missed the boat on a big announcing call, they never even recorded his call of uh, Bobby Thompson shot heard around the world in 51, but he was the television announcer for that. No one remembers that. Everyone of course remembers Russ Hodges.
1: What a travesty. <laughs> Well, Harry, thank you for being a big part of Hot Takedown this week. Thank you. (laughs) That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at at podcast538.com to let us know what you think. The podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in our virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Harry, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.